Now let's turn our attention to God's word as Pastor Brandon leads. Thank you, Lane. Thank you, LifePoint. It's a privilege every time I get to open the Word with you. So thank you um, for just the privilege to do so. Um, I'd invite you to go ahead, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, uh, to turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21 this morning. We are uh, in the second installment of a series called Kingdom Secrets. Uh, And Kingdom Secrets is a study of the parables from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, that seek to help encourage us as a church uh, in the plain and simple, the profound and eternal revealed truths that Jesus gives us for God's kingdom set forth for deeper faith in Jesus to walk in greater obedience to him. And I love the, the depiction that even the sermon title slide gives us, this idea of a, of a glacier, an iceberg, if you will. That Jesus' teachings in parables, although simple at first glance, have a significant depth to them. It's almost as if he's implanting these time bombs of grace in the hearers of, of, of his message. Uh, exposing and revealing secrets at the same time. So while these are both uh, simple and plain, they are deep and profound truths of, uh, of God's grace to us as well. This morning, we're going to look at the parable of the rich fool, and I will do my best to keep my Mr. T references to a minimum here. Um, so don't be a fool is what we're talking about this morning. And a fool is simply not someone who is ignorant in, in the sense that they have an absence of knowledge. But uh, foolishness is the direct contrast to wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. And so uh, when we act in foolishness, it's often not that we lack information or knowledge. It's that we have it, and yet we've not done anything with it. And so this morning, uh, this parable, I think, beckons us to consider these areas of our life where we perhaps may have entertained this idea of truth, um, but we've never really come to grips with it that we've never really acted upon Jesus' teachings um, in these ways. And so, um, so this, is, this is the text that we're uh, looking at this morning in the parable of the rich fool. So let's, let's read from Luke's gospel together in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is what the word of the Lord says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, my brother, tell my brother to dis- divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, The the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself 
and is not rich, so it is. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The main point of this morning's uh, passage and the main point of this parable, uh, I believe, is this. That Christians seek for true riches, Jesus, as the provider of a heavenly inheritance. So Jesus' M.O. in this passage, in this parable for us and for the audience there at the time, is to show us the nature of true riches. To show us where true riches are found, and they are found not in this world, but in the kingdom of God. And so within this parable is a warning that covetousness is of the greatest concern than having something withheld from you. That's his message to the man of the crowds, and that's the message for us this morning, that covetousness is to be our greatest concern. So I kind of, I'm a definer of terms. Um, we, I like to not just throw terms out there, but kind of give a little bit of a, a background or a definition behind them, especially if they're, they're words that we use often in, in church, you know, kind of those churchy words. Um, and so let's define, how would you define covetousness? And so here's what the biblical definition for this word that Jesus warns us against is. It is a strong desire to acquire more than others and to seize it by force, irrespective of need. Okay? Strong desire to acquire it more than others and to seize that by force, often through cunning, manipulative manners. Okay? irrespective of need. It is, in the Old Testament, describes it this way. It is the craving to assert oneself through unlawful gain. So that's the word throughout, used throughout the Old Testament, unlawful gain. And so here's, here's the picture that the Scriptures and the Proverbs particularly give us for this, this sin here, this, this, this entanglement of, of covetousness. The scriptures picture it as so ensnaring, so trapping, that entering into it is like entering a bottomless pit that is never satisfied and always hungry. This is the picture of covetousness. It was the error described in 1 Kings 21 by King Ahab, the king of Samaria, who although he owned much as the king, uh, he has this insatiable desire to seek to take the inheritance of his neighbor. So much so that he allows him to be killed that he might seek and claim his vineyard for himself. So, as the Puritan Thomas Watson says, and I love how simple he puts this, to be covetous is thirsting insatiably after the world and by unjust means seeking to scrape it together. That's what Jesus is warning us against today. An insatiable desire for the world and a seeking after any means necessary to get it. I read an illustration in a devotion this week um, and talked about shrink wrap. That's a great invention, right? Shrink wrap. So uh, I have beef jerky and like freeze-dried meals in my pantry that will probably never expire because of this great invention, right? So shrink wrap, the genius of it 
is uh, that it replicates the size of any object and actually forces all the air out and thus preserves it, right? So um, the devotion I was reading using this illustration was liking it to our selfish desires. That we're to think of them in much the same way, like shrink wrap. That in the same way, our hearts have a way of shrinking down our life to the size of our misplaced desires, of our selfishness. The thing that we treasure most, somehow our heart shrinks all of our life down to whatever that thing is. And so covetousness is the same way. It is like shrink wrap. It shrinks down our hope to what perishes, and rather than preserving us in a good way, it fossilizes and hardens our hearts against true riches and centers it, shrinks it down to a false richness. And so Jesus warns the man in the crowd that he's in danger of this shrinking desire of covetousness. And so let's look together at three errors that I believe model for us what a discontented heart that is on its way to covetousness looks like from the man in the crowds. Three errors of the man in the crowds is a model of a discontented heart that is set upon covetousness. Number one, we see that Jesus, he's wanting Jesus what? To approve and impose authority upon his desires. The man in the crowd wants Jesus to authorize his desire. He already has an M.O. He's not coming to learn from Jesus. He's coming to get approval from Jesus over something that he's brought. He didn't care to have what Jesus had to offer as much as he sought Jesus' stamp of approval upon it. And so this mindset is honestly illustrates uh, what Luke often does throughout his account is he sets the crowds against the disciples. He compares and contrasts them throughout the whole book, particularly when you have Jesus teaching in front of a group of people. And so what is the difference? Jesus is often suspicious of crowds. Suspicious of crowds. Look at, ver- look at chapter 12, the first two verses. It says that there were so many thousands of people that had gathered together to hear Jesus that they were trampling on one another. So just cram-packed, right? Not just a thousand, but so many thousands. Okay? This is the scene here. But who does, he, who does he speak to? He says what? He speaks to his disciples. So, in 11.29, he even identifies the motives of the crowds as being evil from the onset. So, Jesus was suspicious of crowds. Any large gathering of crowds, he was honestly always suspicious of them, and he would speak to his followers directly. And whatever was caught residually was then for the crowds. But he gave his attention to his disciples. How often backwards that is to our view of things, even church today, right? So, Jesus was suspicious of crowds. 
But here's, notice the difference in just the approach to Jesus between the crowds and the disciples. The crowds did what? They made statements while the disciples asked to be taught. You see this throughout the book of Luke. But in chapter 11, verse 1, you have the disciples asking Jesus questions like, Lord, will you teach us to pray? I'm going to trip over this. Will you teach us to pray? Will you instruct us? They're yielding themselves to be taught by Jesus. Whereas here in 12, 13, you have a man who's saying, Jesus, will you tell my brother to do this? Parents and those who work with students or young people, you've seen this ploy happen before, right? Like um, some, some of you in the room, students, you've tried this one on me recently. Like, will you tell him to give me this? Will you do this? You have somehow you feel like there's some context that's missing there, right? But yet, in the eyes of whoever's coming to you, there's a deep injustice at hand, right? And so, at some point, we've all tried this ploy to leverage an approval of an authority under this cunning guise of innocence, right? Without full disclosure or or giving the full context of the request and. And ultimately, the motive is what? The advancement of your own agenda, right? The advancement of your own agenda. This is what this man is doing here. He is seeking to have his agenda authorized by Jesus. Here's the application for us. Disciples, however, live, those who are seeking to follow Jesus, they live to yearn and yield to be taught by Jesus in every way of their life. Yet crowd members are attracted to him just to authorize their yearnings. Secondly, we see not only does this man want Jesus to authorize his cravings and to bring substance and authority to them, he actually wants Jesus to change the law for him. He actually wants Jesus to change the law to his advantage. So not only is he seeking approval, but he's seeking to actually change the legislation underneath that's holding him responsible. And so there are two options commentators identify with us, uh, identify behind the man's request to Jesus. Okay? The first one is this, that his brother had somehow wronged him and had, appro- and had appealed to Jesus to make it right. That literally this man was in some act of injustice, that his brother had given to him. The second option, however, is he had a mind to do his brother wrong for personal benefit, which is the one that many commentators, and I believe, is the most likely in this passage because Jesus' warning comes against him in the act of covetousness. He's desiring something that's not meant to be his own, more than he has been allotted. And so what is he doing? I believe the, I believe the Old Testament gives us a, an, a light of what's going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. We have this instruction in Deuteronomy 21 that God gave to show his people how to apportion inheritances. And the portion of the firstborn was always to be double as the first fruit. Okay? The first fruit offering, the first fruit inheritance was always a doubling of this. This is also the very birthright that Esau despised for a bowl of soup, by the way, okay? I think he lost out, don't you? Like, he gave up a double portion of inheritance and gave it to his brother. This was his birthright. So this is the birthright of the firstborn, a double portion. 
And so this man undoubtedly is yearning after the portion of his elder brother who has the right to the double portion. In the name of injustice, he wants equality, okay? And so rather than follow after the instruction of the commandment, he seeks to ask Jesus to command, to change it. This man loved his sinful desires so that he wanted Jesus to change the law that he might fully indulge in it. To somehow re- not only authorize his desire, but release him from his responsibility in order to indulge him. This man wanted more, and he desired to have more to such an extent that he wanted not only Jesus' approval and the authority of Jesus upon it, but to alter the very scripture that applied to his specific case. Here he actually wishes to leverage sovereignty against sovereignty to take what God had sovereignty, sovereignly given him. He's pitting providence against itself here in seeking to do this. So he desire, Notice this, though. He desires his brother to submit to this, though. He himself is not willing to submit to the scripture that he is directly responsible for, he seeks to distance himself from it and to deflect his responsibility upon his brother, whom he expects will submit when Jesus just signs off on this. And so, how, isn't that crazy how subtle our sinful hearts will twist things, even the word of God, to our advantage? to deflect it away from ourselves and impose it upon someone else when the direct responsibility is ours. And so he sought to change the rules when he was the one directly responsible here. So have you ever played a game with somebody, whether it be a board game or a sports game or, a, you, know, you know, whatever it may be, where someone who suddenly finds themselves in a disadvantage, they try to what? Change the rules on you, right? Or suddenly they become the rule expert. And it's like, oh, no, you know, we, th- that, you can't do that. When the book clear, then you've got the objective person who's like, the book says it's clear right here, right? But they, in, even no matter how clear it might be, some of you are that person in the room. Some of you are looking at one another going, yeah, that's you, okay? I've played some of these games with you, I know. So, but what happens? No matter how objective the rule might seem or how clear-cut it may be, they kind of muddy the water a little bit, and suddenly something that was even clearly objective is somehow kind of muddled with subjectivity. That's kind of what's taking place here. And so here's the thing, attempting to change or distance ourselves from the precepts of God is a convenient balm when our hearts are set upon an, an inheritance not of the kingdom. But here's the thing, it will only serve, though, to further distance and harden us from the true riches Jesus has for us. Here's why, because often... The thing that we are most resistant to is the thing we need most. The thing that we are often offended by is the thing that we 
need most. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When the Word of God is disagreeing and confronting you, and at times even irritating your natural self, that is one of the best indicators that it is divinely inspired and revelatory. In other words, that, that God is speaking to you and correcting you in a matter. And changing your thinking to shift you and point you to something greater. Now, why is that? Because one of the elements that you and I have an authentic relationship is what? That we give someone the permission to disagree with us, to even confront us at times. And so if you are in a dynamic relationship with the living God, would you expect no less from him? But here's what we do. We, we want to dodge that and deflect that somewhere else. But here's the thing, you and I should expect and seek this if we're actually trying to follow Jesus rather than warp it or dodge it or deflect it, as we often do. So not only had he sought Jesus' authorization, he wanted Jesus to change the law for his own benefit, but lastly, he had severely limited Jesus' authority. In the same way, he had boiled it down only to civil disagreements, period, right? He had not only this agenda, but he had an application where he had condensed Jesus down to just being a civil savior alone. So even though Jesus, it was well within his power to do so, he didn't stand in the way of civil authorities here. Or take up that authority as his own to apportion and divide up an inheritance, right? He had the authority to do so, but he did not. He chose to let the civil authorities do that. Hence why he questions the man in verse 15 to say, Who do you think I am? Who gave me this role? He had come for other purposes, which is evident in the content of his next statement, which is in the warning that he gives this man. Watch yourself and guard yourself from all covetousness. You see, the man's concern was directly related to someone else and and his estate rather than himself. And so he says, observe yourself First, your concern is misguided when you must place the concern solely on yourself. And so the word here translated in verse 15 in his instruction to take care, or yeah, verse 15 in the ESV, take care, literally is translated make visible. So Jesus is showing him that his greatest concern is hidden to him. That his greatest concern, his concern is misplaced. And what he must do is he must carefully pay attention to himself and bring that into the light to guard himself from misplaced desire for more. I love how the, um, the old commentator and pastor Matthew Henry in the 1800s writes this about this passage. He says, Though he came not to be a divider of men's estates, He came to be a director of their consciences about them and would have all take heed of harboring that corrupt principle which they saw to be in others as the root of so much evil. They saw it in others, but yet they somehow missed it in themselves. 
And so just as Jesus had not come to divide and provide for an earthly inheritance, but a heavenly one, he had not come to divide up his, the possessions of men. You see, Jesus comes to divide the hearts of men. To lead them to an everlasting hope set in God. And so if this man would be a disciple, he must not place his hope in the abundance of things. He must not place his assurance in temporary, temporal things, but to yield himself to the one who can give eternal things. And so here's a man who had, in fact, in his request, no concern for his own soul. Here's a man who had no care for his own soul or for the kingdom of heaven. He only had his estate in mind. Only his estate above all else, which led him then also, in his disregard of his own soul, to disregard his brother as well. And that's where covetousness starts. A disregard for the substance of, of our soul to disregard that of another. So we would do well to heed the warnings of this model. This man... For these are the markers of discontent that often in infancy yield themselves to a covetous heart. And we must bring these things to sight in ourselves that we might guard against them and direct ourselves to an everlasting hope. And so after warning the man of his errors, Jesus moves to illustrate this plain truth in the form of a parable. And it's a short parable, but it's... it's the point of the parable is this, that temporal treasures perish with their owners, but true rest and true treasure abides in heaven, in the kingdom. Only imperishable riches, he says, can give rest to a soul formed for eternal things. Life is not found in the abundance of things that we can accumulate, leverage, and control. The parable, Jesus, if you notice in the parable, Jesus doesn't, doesn't condemn the man for having riches, right? He doesn't condemn the man for storing up things. As a matter of fact, the Word of God often says that this is a blessing from the Lord, that this is wise to do so. But what he does command is the man's heart. It is covetousness that he is condemning. And here's why this is true, because we see in this parable not just the outward effects of what this man's doing, the external actions, but we see the inward working and motivations of his heart. Notice this. The man can only think of himself. Six times in two verses, he uses the first person singular pronoun I. Six times. Look at it. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store my grain. And I will say to my soul, this man is consumed with himself. His salvation and his treasure is himself. And so the, take note of this. The covetous heart 
long before it's obsessed with stuff, is obsessed with self. This is the, this is the inward stirring of this man. Not only is this man, uh, is, the, is I mentioned six different times, but God is not mentioned a single time. He believes his purpose is actually tied to the accumulation of more. And even though he has plenty for himself, verse 16 says, he has to accumulate more. He must build more so that he might have more. He must tear down so that he might have more. And so he builds more to hold more. And in all of this parable, there again is no mention of God or his purposes. Only the actions and motivations of this rich man. He had set his hope. Here, here's what he had done. He had set his hope on his power to accumulate more. He had set his hope and salvation on, as the scripture says, what his own right hand could bring him. He became the living embodiment of what Psalm 52, verses 6 and 7 condemns. And it says this, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. The picture the scripture gives us is not that a man has misplaced his hope, but that he has buried himself in his own self-destruction. When we seek riches over God's riches, this is what we do. We incur self-destruction. The man also thought he owned everything, but realized that everything he had worked for was actually lent to him. Jesus says, I'm quoting God, all of these things that you, in verse uh, 20, all of these things you've prepared, who will they be? Who will own them? Not only had he thought he owned everything, but he soon realized that everything he'd worked for was not his own. Not even his own soul was his own, but something lent to him. And God said, you know, the time's up, punch the clock, your soul's required of you. Not even, he, not even himself did he own. And so his greed led him to believe that he was sovereign. And that's what greed does. It led him to believe he was sovereign. He actually thought that his preparation could leverage, in his preparation and in his accumulation of all things, he could leverage any situation control any detail when in fact his greed had grown to control him. And it had choked out the true riches that God had for him. And so the only affirmative that Jesus gives us in this entire passage is what? At the end of the parable in verse 21, to be rich towards God rather than self. To replace that insatiable, bottomless pit of desire after worldliness and the accumulation of all that the world has to offer. And it doesn't just have to be stuff, remember? Because it's set in self and whatever it is that leverages self above circumstance and allows self to control and rule. Rather than that, to replace that with a 
higher than average desire for God and his kingdom. So instead of the desire to acquire more and possess more than other people, then we should have a more than normal desire for the riches of the kingdom. To be regarded as having more than the norm of society and our desire for these things is what, is what he's saying. And so the desire for more things, like all sin, just shrinks you down to that hope. The desire for more things like all sin is unworthy and shallow. And as C.S. Lewis, I think, helpfully illustrates in his little short sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. For we are far too easily pleased. But if trans-temporal, trans-infinite good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes itself must in some way be fallacious. It must bear at best only a symbolic relation to that which will truly satisfy. If good things that we set our heart on are at best fallacious and symbolic of what will truly satisfy. What does it say about our misplaced, shallow desires? But see, here's the thing. God means for our riches to be much deeper, much richer, much more substantive. He means for them to be eternal. And that bottomless pit of insatiable desire, he wants to give us an endless supply of his grace so that in the ages to come, we would be able to plunge the depths of grace upon grace upon grace. That's what he offers to us. This is what truly Jesus comes to hold out to us. And so Christians seek Jesus as the true riches, as the provider for an heavenly inheritance. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and return. I want to ask you, this in response what inheritance are you seeking have you reckoned with yourself what is that inward restlessness of if I only had blank then I could say my soul is secure for that thing that you have said in that place is the thing you are looking to as your ultimate hope and that thing, if it's not set in the, in the kingdom of God and in Christ the Redeemer, it will shrink your life down to the size of that hope. Which means if it's perishable, your hope is perishable. Christian, is there any way perhaps that you might be looking to Jesus to authorize some treasure or some desire that you have that's not his desire for you? Some desire for worldly things rather than his desire for riches that he's asked and called you to. Don't let the insatiable desires of this world, hear me, don't let the insatiable desires of this world keep you from an imperishable hope of true riches in the kingdom.